Welcome to Sabbath School for June 13, 2020. This is uh, growing towards the close, almost the end of the second quarter of the year, and we've been going through a lesson study about how to interpret Scripture. And I have been blessed beyond measure, and I trust that you have as well. I would ask, but it's, it's rhetorical. Of course you've been blessed. This has been a wonderful lesson study, and this week's lesson is no different. In fact, I, in, in all honesty, I can't remember the last time I saw one week's lesson that had more content, more meat to dive into and to, to study. and to. There's just so much to cover. I don't know how we're going to cover it. And it's just fantastic. But before we get into our lesson study and that Bible study and prayer foundation of Sabbath School, we need to begin with our mission focus. Today we have a mission spotlight from the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists highlighting mission work around the world, so take a look. Adventists are getting noticed at one of Hungary's biggest music festivals. It's a little out of the ordinary, but offering to paint designs has attracted concertgoers to these local church members' booth. It's important to find something people will be excited about. Don't worry, though. The paint is washable. They're also offering temporary hair coloring, lemonade, and, of course, prayer. At events like this, church members have the opportunity to invite people to visit a nearby urban center of influence. Tundarivis came to this global mission urban center of influence in Mishkok, hoping for relief from her health issues. She was warmly greeted by the staff, and after some evaluation, they recommended lifestyle changes and natural treatments offered at the center. Over time, her health improved, and now she can't imagine what life would be like if she hadn't come here, not just for her physical health, but also mentally and socially. I actually developed friendships with the people working here. It's very important to have this kind of community. I learned a lot here, and it was such a community-building experience. Although these services are offered with no strings attached, sometimes these interactions lead to more than just health improvements. Since I started coming here, I've applied to attend an Adventist health camp in the summer, and I've been taking Bible studies. An Adventist summer camp opens for a week each summer. People come from all over Hungary to make new friends and participate in outdoor activities. Most have heard about the camp through various urban centers of influence or from their Adventist friends. This is a lifestyle camp. We are doing uh, lifestyle evangelism. But it means uh, that we invite friends and people who are not uh, in contact with Adventist Church. We have here about 200 people. Most of them are not Adventist people. And they are invited just because uh, we have hiking programs, we have cycling and different sports programs, and they are attracted uh, to this program. If we invite somebody to our local church, maybe nobody would come, at least in this part of the Europe. But if we invite them to participate in a program like this, they would like to come because they like to be healthy, they like uh, to have new friends. And uh, in this way, this, this is a non-flattening way of connect uh, with them and to connect them uh, with Jesus Christ and to the Adventist Church. The camp is a social place where people can bond together in nature. There are seminars and discussions about health and religious topics that attract many of the attendees. They're provided healthy meals that feature bread from the camp's bakery. At the end of the week, 
many people go home feeling inspired by the retreat, and some even decide to take Bible studies or volunteer at their local urban center of influence. For those who may not live near an urban center of influence, there is another solution. Hungarian church leaders in the Duna Conference want to meet people where they are, so they created a fully outfitted ministry caravan. After purchasing a van and trailer, Adventist professionals designed and renovated the interior of the trailer to be a modern mobile center of influence. The Duna Conference is made up of 54 churches, so each church has the opportunity to invite the van to their town for one weekend each year. The ministry is operated by volunteers who work closely with the local members who invited them to determine what type of program would be appreciated by the community. Usually, the van is parked in a central, prominent part of town. They offer health expos, children's programs, cooking classes, a Christian film club, and personal counseling. The programs of the Mobile Center of Influence have to be flexible to meet the changing needs of people in towns and cities. This van allows Adventists to connect with people in the community and develop a long-term relationship. Your prayers and giving to Global Mission have helped these ministries become a reality. Please continue to pray and consider what you can give to this cause. Thank you for supporting Global Mission. We want to make Jesus famous here. This is our goal. We, we want the people to see this place as a place of refuge, as a place uh, where they can find a family, as a place where uh, they can find Jesus or a, a peace in the midst of, of the storm. See you. Bye-bye. Elias and Melina left their home in Argentina and moved to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. They became Adventist volunteers and now manage a global mission urban center of influence called Meeting Point. When you are in Christ, you are born as a missionary as well. So that's why we decided to, to, to take this challenge of being a missionary. We're trying to give all we have learned to serve others. Yo creo que es importante I think it's important to have the same method that Jesus had. First, he related to the person, saw their needs, and then preached. It's basically what we're trying to do. Use this method. Following Christ's method of ministry, Elias and Melina go door to door to find out what kind of programs their neighbors are interested in then they can tailor their work to the needs of the community. After just a few months in Cyprus, the volunteers have started a variety of programs at Meeting Point. I give nutrition advice, therapeutic massages, facial treatments, and things to help me grow a little closer to the people. These health programs give Elias and Melina the opportunity to connect with people who otherwise probably wouldn't walk into an Adventist church. Although many people on the island speak English, Greek is even more widely spoken. The greatest challenge here is the language. That's why we are looking forward to, to learn Greek as quickly as possible in order to communicate better with the people. They found creative ways to communicate with the Greek-speaking visitors, like using translation apps on their phones or learning common Greek phrases. When someone comes to Meeting Point, they are greeted by a warm atmosphere, refreshments, and books as they wait for their health assessment. 
After the assessment, visitors receive an evaluation with lifestyle suggestions and are encouraged to visit again to follow up on their progress. Meeting Point is also a place kids love. Elias and Melina host a fun activity each week and plan to expand the programs. It will be a program for kids where they will make crafts. We will make crafts, follow recipes, and play games. There's a fun part and a part where they learn something. Today's activity involves painting positive messages onto stones. The kids love doing crafts like this. But the real fun comes when they give their creations away to strangers on the street. People love receiving these precious gifts. The kids go home knowing that they've spread some joy in the community. We are sure that God is blessing this activity because we see the happiness in their faces. And we are sure that with, with time and patience and love and uh, trying to show Jesus to them, we will see many results, many people saved by this activity. So this is uh, something that makes us very, really happy. Each Sabbath, Elias and Melina lead the worship service for the church plant that gathers in Meeting Point. Some of the people here attend regularly, while others are just visiting. Your prayers and mission offerings have played a key role in making this happen. I want to give our gratitude to the worldwide church because by your support, by your help, by your tithes, by your offerings, we are making the difference here. Thank you for supporting the Seventh-day Adventist Church and helping Adventist volunteers like Elias and Melina spread the love of Jesus to the world. Isn't it exciting to see how the work is being done all around the world? It's creative, they've got young people, they've got diverse ideas, they've got simple tools, but the work is going forward and it's so exciting to see the mission work go forward. But a question you might be having is, why is mission so tied into Sabbath school? Why are those two so closely integrated? Well, I know that many people, or likely many people, Think of Sabbath school as that time before the worship service where you come and you go to a Sabbath school class and you study the lesson and you rehearse the Bible study message. But how does message relate to mission? Well, I want to show you something. You go to John chapter 17. I'm assuming you have your Bibles here with you. Or if you're watching from home, grab one. You can even get them on your smartphone. However you get to your scriptures, go to John chapter 17. I want to show you something I find particularly interesting. Jesus, of course, is praying to his heavenly Father, and he begins praying for himself, but that's the smallest portion of his prayer. He's so selfless. And he begins to pray for his disciples and the work that they would do. And I want to just very quickly highlight something. John chapter 17, verse 8, Jesus says, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. Speaking of his own disciples, Christ gave the word, and they received them. Now go to verse 14. I have given them your word, and what was the result? And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So that word took them away from the world and made them more like Jesus. It has a transformative power that they, there was now a distinction. They had changed because of that word. Now, let's go down to verse 18. 
And now notice what Christ does. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Why was he sending them into the world? He was sending them on this mission because they had the message. We've been told over and over, and I believe it is true, that message drives mission. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised up by God to be a missionary movement. What Christ did for his disciples in the early church that we just saw in John chapter 17, where he gave them the word and then sent them on the uh, mission with that message, the Lord has done in these last days. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised up not to be just another denomination, but to be a movement to give the three angels' message to the world. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, we're also very familiar with it. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to do what? To preach. We're never given the gospel just to keep. We're given it to give it. To preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And it goes on, of course, you know, verses 7, 8, 9, all through 12. It gives us that precious message that we've been given. But friends, if we merely rehearse this message among ourselves week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, we are neglecting our duty and endangering our own souls. I was talking to my wife about this the other evening. I said, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of a word. There's got to be a word for something. You know, if you have a message but you don't give it, Like, isn't the very nature of a message that it's given? If you don't give the message, then it's not a message. And I was like, is there a term for that? And she said, well, if you're writing your email and you write out a message, but you don't actually push send, it's just a draft, right? I don't believe the Lord has given us the three angels' messages to remain in our draft box. It needs to be sent out. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And we see this in our great Advent movement as well. When we reflect on the pioneers of this great Seventh-day Adventist church and their missionary lifestyle, their missionary living, and their missionary giving, it's inspiring. You know, most of Seventh-day Adventist colleges and universities began as missionary training schools. Way out west, we had not Loma Linda University at the time, but it was the Loma Linda College of Medical what? evangelists. Over on the East Coast, the Washington Adventist University used to be Washington what? Missionary College. Down South, my alma mater. Sorry. (laughs) Before it was Southern Adventist University, it was Southern Missionary College. Up North, very nearby. Before it was Andrews University, it was the Emmanuel Missionary College. The expectation was, if you're going to be part of this movement, you're going to be a messenger. You're going to be a missionary. Interestingly enough, that lifestyle was seen statistically, financially. People were committed to it, not just in word, but in deed. Mission giving peaked in the 1930s. When for every $10 given in tithe, members would each give an additional $6.45 in mission offerings. By 2014, which is the latest data that I've been able to come across, 
that number dropped to 39 cents in mission offerings for every $10 given in tithe. Now, I've heard the arguments, well, there's other ministries now that people give to supporting work, and there's other, and that praise the Lord for all the work that's going on, and there, there's all kinds of reasons, but statistically, it is evident that while tithe remains, the mission giving has been on decline. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I don't know you at all, but I'll just speak for myself. I'm not that old yet. But I still remember when every Sabbath we had Mission Spotlight. And we used to read those missionary stories about the, the little truck that could somehow go there. And these people would take a boat and they go to these far distant lands and have these miracle things. And kids wanted to grow up to be missionaries. This is what the Lord wants us to be. Friends, take a look around. This world is waxing old like a garment, and we must be about our Father's business. We need a revival of that pioneer missionary spirit. So while we trust and we affirm that the foundation of Sabbath school is always going to be Bible study and prayer, it's always going to be the largest focus, it's always going to be the predominant amount of time spent in the Sabbath school program, we also encourage, and I would correct myself and say, expect that the focus of Sabbath school is and always must be not just hearing the message, but giving the message. Thus, we advocate what I like to call the mission program funnel, that every local church would spend a few minutes, 15 to 20 minutes each week, talking about, reviewing, encouraging, training for mission. Call that the mission program. Go to Acts chapter 1. You still have your Bibles out. Just go to the right to Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, a very well-known passage where Jesus himself, just like he was the one who prayed in John chapter 17, now he instructs in Acts chapter 1 to his disciples gathered around him, the very ones he had prayed for in John 17, now he instructs in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. Notice that there's a three-tier expectation of missionary service. First of all, he says, You, individually, will be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know where your Jerusalem is. It might be right here in Berrien Springs, where it might be across the Michigan Conference or around the world, whoever's tuning in at this moment. But every one of us has a Jerusalem that we're supposed to work in as individuals, as personal missionaries for Jesus Christ. Also, however, beyond what we do individually, there's a corporate aspect to our missionary work that every local church should be part of and every local conference should be active in in their territory, the Judea and Samaria, if you will. And of course, there's always going to be the need for the foreign mission work to the ends of the world. But what we would encourage every local church is to highlight those three aspects of the mission work every Sabbath. So, this brief 15 to 20 minute mission program should include all these areas that Jesus himself outlined. First of all, again, I like to call it a funnel because I like to start wide because you get inspiration seeing what's going on overseas. 
By the way, if you have a local missionary, if you have a foreign missionary who happens to be in town or can be in contact with some missionary uh, uh, institution or organization, bring them on up to the platform. Interview them live and say, we have a missionary here in person to tell us a story, tell us a testimony, bring them up front. If you don't have the access to that, which most local churches don't have a foreign missionary in their midst every Sabbath, no problem. The General Conference has been kind enough to put together, through Advent Mission, these mission spotlight programs. Now, the one we watched this morning was just a little bit longer than usual, but each week they have a three to five minute mission spotlight that fits into every program. So you can just say, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sabbath School. This is Mission Spotlight. And you're off. By the way, being a Sabbath school superintendent has never been easier. Just push play. Super simple. But that inspires us. It reminds us that we don't just live in this location. I don't just have my own Jerusalem, but there's an entire world out there that's hearing the gospel message even now, and it stirs up love and good works. Now, after you see that global work, we must transition to the local work because too many times I fear that people get confused when they hear the term missionary, they automatically insert the adjective foreign missionary. You know, those are the people who go over there and our job is to pray for them and to pay for them. And we watch them and we say amen and that's it. But friends, if you're alive anywhere at all, you are a missionary and there's some territory for you to be working in. And when I talk about you, I mean the corporate you at this point. Your local church, your local conference, the territory that we've been placed in by the Lord through circumstances of our lives, he has entrusted to us to be soul winners in that capacity. So every conference should have departments doing all kinds of initiatives and uh, interesting projects and outreach opportunities, and we can highlight those every week in the Sabbath program. Or even local churches. Every department of the local church should be in outreach, doing some sort of gathering of interest, getting the message out there, some creative way, whether it's the church school or the Pathfinders or each Sabbath school class or the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the community service. We can go on and on and on. And there's something that we could say either from the local church or from the local conference every Sabbath in every local church. Amen? Now, for those of you who are watching live streaming, there was a thunderous amen. You just didn't hear it. Don't worry. <laughs> but global looks at their work over there. Local looks at our work here. But friends, there's that final step in the funnel. When Jesus looked to his disciples and said, you will be my witnesses. And each one of us is called to be a personal missionary for Jesus Christ. So we need to highlight how the Lord is working not just through organized institutions and charities and benevolent associations and missionary outreach. We need to highlight how the Lord is working through individuals every time we can. So if there's a testimony of how someone has been one to the Lord or how they're winning someone to the Lord by his grace or some piece of literature that changed a life or some, something that one person has done, bring them up and interview them. Highlight what the Lord is doing. This is an opportunity, by the way, to train for personal ministry work. This is where we can talk about how to arrest the attention of passerbys, how to start a spiritual conversation, how to put into practice that Christ's method alone, how to win souls for Jesus Christ, that missionary funnel. And you can do all of this in 15 to 20 minutes in every local church. Let me let you know as we transition here for a moment about some resources you can have available right now 
for this very purpose. First of all, I want you to let you know about the Michigan Conference Sabbath School and Personal Ministries page, which is michigansspm.org. Now, I know that's a little clumsy, Michigan SSPM, but it'd be much more clumsy to say Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department.org. <laughs> michiganssspm.org. And you will find all of the resources that we've mentioned, links to or downloadable opportunities for global mission work reports, local conference ones. If you don't have something from your local church, we have a a plethora and we're always adding more testimony videos that you can show. We have the personal ministries training things that you can find there at michigansspm.org. And another website or two that I want to direct you is we have a very close relationship with the General Conference Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department. And two websites I want to let you know about there. For their Sabbath School branch, it's alive.adventist.org. And for their personal ministries training tools like videos and curriculums and all kinds of other resources, you can go to grow.adventist.org. But all of these resources, the whole purpose of the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department is to recognize that, yes, we have a message, and we should be solid in that message. Elder Howard's going to come up and talk about how we need to teach more effectively in that message, but the message is to be sent and not just to be left as a draft in our inbox, in our own individual experience. But Lord has called you into this movement to move, and we need to revive that spirit among God's people, and Sabbath school is that place where that can happen, one of the most effective ways in the local church. What do you say, amen? Amen. Pastor Howard, why don't you come up and talk about that message and how teaching can be one of those effective tools for soul winning in our church. All right. Good morning. Is my mic on? Not enough. They're going to work on that. My green light's on here. Um, Thank you for that challenge and that inspiration, Elder DeVazier, uh, are you guys ready for a pop quiz? <laughs> sure you are, because we're in Sabbath school. Amen. So here goes, pop quiz. Question, what kind of bird doesn't fly? Nope, jailbird. Now you're going to get the, ne- the next one will come a little easier, I think. What kind of dog doesn't bark? Ah, hot dog, that's right. What kind of teacher doesn't teach? An adult Sabbath school teacher. Oh, have mercy. Let me tell you something. One of the initiatives in the Sabbath school personal ministries department here in Michigan is putting the school back in Sabbath school. The Sabbath school is intended to be just that, a place where the students can come and learn the Bible. And incidentally, a quick note here. I love the quarterly, but this is not our lesson book for Sabbath school. This is our lesson book for Sabbath school. Amen? And, and I want to encourage you when you're studying each week, if you're studying the quarterly, which I hope you do, that you're looking up and reading the passages in the lesson book. Listen to this amazing statement from the book Councils on Sabbath School Work, pages 10 and 11. It says, The Sabbath school is an important branch of the missionary work not only because it gives to young and old a knowledge of God's Word, but because it awakens in them a love for its sacred truths 
and a desire to study them, those truths, themselves. Is that what your Sabbath school does? Ask yourself that question. Is it giving to young and old a knowledge of the Word, awakening a love for the Word and the truths of the Word, and a desire to study the Word? The statement goes on. Above all, it, the Sabbath school, teaches the students to regulate their lives by its holy teachings. The Sabbath school is a place where we are to learn the word and be inspired by the word. Now, in that same book, Councils on Sabbath School Work, page 84, Ellen White writes, Do not make the Sabbath school lessons dry and spiritless. Amen. In recent years, this has been interpreted to mean more discussion and less instruction. Now, I'm not opposed to discussion, but many classes have almost jettisoned the lesson, and I hope this is the exception. But as I've gone around to church after church, being part of the Sabbath School Personal Ministries Department, there are places where the lesson isn't even touched on. It's a discussion class, and the teachers don't call themselves teachers, they call themselves facilitators, to facilitate discussion. What's worse is, a lot of the students themselves haven't studied the lesson, so the discussion couldn't possibly be on the lesson. And I know that there are a lot of people, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists today, who feel like a vibrant class is one where a lot of discussion takes place. Folks, I can get discussion going real quick, but that doesn't mean it's profitable. And what I find is more and more Seventh-day Adventists are knowing less and less of the Adventist message, less and less of the Scripture, less and less desire to study the Scripture and mold their lives to its sacred truths. While some consider a big discussion class healthy, I feel it's a major contributing factor to the decline in our Sabbath schools. It robs them of substance. Now you say, well, that's crazy talk. Turn in your Bibles with me real quick to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I want you to ponder something here that the wise man says. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're starting in the first verse. The Bible says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Where is that? Church. Walk prudently when you go to church, notice, and draw near to here rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. So notice there are two options we have when we come to the house of God. We can either draw near to here or we can offer the sacrifice of fools. Now bear with the wise man here as he continues on. Verse 2, uh, verse two gets a little closer, but verse 3 is going to bring it home. Verse 2 says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. What's the wise man saying? When we come to the house of God, we have one of two options. We can draw near to what? 
here or offer the sacrifice of fools. In the context, what's the sacrifice of fools? We can come and hear and learn, or we can come to do a lot of talking. You follow that? Now, that's not to say we can't talk in church. That's not to say we can't have discussion in Sabbath school classes. But I want to say, saints, the purpose God has us come to church is to learn of him. Hear the words of a living preacher. Come to the Sabbath school class. Learn the lesson. Learn the truths of Scripture. And let them inspire our hearts. Again, this is not to discourage discussion, but to ensure that the heart of Sabbath school, the study of God's Word, is not lost. And so we've had, I've had a number of people say, oh, for, for the camp meeting, are you going to do a Sabbath school panel? No. We're not doing a Sabbath school panel. In a Sabbath school panel, everybody's the teacher. And as Pastor Elder DeVazier and I are, are working in the Sabbath School Personal Ministries Department, we understand that the role of our department is to help local churches know how to do Sabbath School, and weekly Sabbath Schools in local churches aren't panels. They're classes. And so we're going to do our best in this context to model a Sabbath School class today. And I asked a good friend of mine, Allison Dent, here. She's not here this week. She'll be in our class next week to round up some of the young adults here in this church as students in the class today, and I'm going to invite them out, and we are going to have a Sabbath school class and go through the lesson today in a panel, which I've done before. You often get together the night before the lesson or sometime before the lesson, and and you go over everything, and you rehearse what you're going to say. We haven't done that. The only rehearsal I gave them to do was to study the lesson like you would on Sabbath, coming and being prepared to go over it. And so that's what we're going to go into now. And I hope that you have looked at the Sabbath School lesson this week. I will say that Elder DeVasier and I have talked quite a bit about this. Of all the lessons, it would have to be this lesson that we would do this with. Because if you've studied the quarterly, we had basically three or four major Adventist prophecies that we're all supposed to affirm in this one lesson. It's like packed, but we're going to do our best to get through it. Now, before we do that, I'd like to have our students introduce themselves today. So I'm going to start with Indy here and just go around and tell us your name, introduce yourself to the folks here and what you're doing here and how your arm was twisted to be in this Sabbath school class. Well, there was no arm twisting on my part. I don't know Amen. about the rest of the, the panelists here or the, the class here. My name is Andy. Um, I'm pastoring here at the church, and I'm also a student in the seminary doing my doctoral studies. Amen. Um, testing, testing, testing. Testing, testing. Can you hear me? Nope. Yes, no? It's on, but it's a little low. Okay. Andy, pass me your mic. There we go. Um, I will say Pastor Andy has a bad habit of voluntelling people, but I was not voluntold because he had a little disclaimer that said, you don't have to do this. So he said that. Um, I'm Aaron. I'm a chemistry major at Andrews University, um, and I am part of the Village Youth Sabbath School class. I'm Dorothea, and I'm a master's student at Indiana University. All right. My name is Erin, and I'm studying nursing here at Andrews, and I'm also part of the Youth Sabbath School class here. All right, so they tried to throw me a curve, I think. We've got Andy, but then we've got Aaron and Erin. 
Okay, so, and then we have Dorothea, who was supposed to be your sister, Christiana. They switched it up, but it's okay. I think we can still roll with this lesson. Now, one thing I have not, I, I don't know if I've told you guys in my preparatory email, if any of you have been watching the, what Elder DeVager and I have been preparing for Sabbath school uh, each week during this COVID crisis, one of the things we've been encouraging people to do is actually memorize the memory verse. How many of you are aware of that? Have you watched any of that? Any of you? I'm sure some of our viewers have recognized that because it always bugs me in the adult class when we start the class. And I, like I said, I, church after church after church, would somebody volunteer to read the memory verse? You don't read a memory verse. You recite a memory verse. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to ask if anybody... <laughs> with that uh, <laughs> little uh, uh, introduction, has perhaps memorized this week's memory verse. I'm going to help him out a little bit. One of our pastors, Pastor Jacob Gibbs, oops, has actually, um, in a, and you can't see this, we put this on our site, but he's, he's sketched out the memory verse, this little memory thing here, Okay. You know, Pastor Howard, I was thinking of asking Pastor Gibbs if he could do those in advance and we could put together an adult Sabbath school memory verse coloring book Amen. to help the saints along. Yeah. All right, well, we need to move along. So let's start. And he said to me, well, together. Okay, now I tell them, I, I, I've told people too, I get, sometimes I memorize things in the King James and then you get in the New King James. And, yeah. But we got the gist of it. Where is it found? Does it say on there? Daniel 8.14. Oh, there it is. Daniel 8.14. Of all times, now is the time, I think it's important for us to be hiding the word, word of God in our heart. Memorizing those. Uh, that's the reason it's there is a memory verse. So that's a memory verse for this week. Because we're looking at the subject is the Bible and prophecy. And one of the reasons is our lesson quarterly has been on interpreting scripture. And the way you interpret scripture will very much affect how you interpret prophecy. So the lesson doesn't bring all this detail out, but there are three main schools of prophetic interpretation, schools of thought on prophetic interpretation. There's something called preterism. Just think of the prefix pre, before. Preterism believes that all the prophecies of the Bible, those apocalyptic prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, were all finished up by the time the canon of Scripture was closed. So by 100 A.D., it was all done. It's all in the past. Futurism believes that while some prophecies have met a fulfillment or partial fulfillments, the majority of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation are still, even now in 2020, yet to take place in the future. Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, hold to the view of historicism, and we're not alone in that. It was the view of the Protestants in the Reformation. Um, but if somebody has their quarterly lesson with them, on Sunday's lesson, on the first paragraph, there's a little, um, it has a little introduction to what historicism is. Could somebody read that for me, please? Who has that? Aaron, why don't yeah. you go ahead and read that? The foundational uh, method... That's, oh. You got it. You got it. <laughs> the foundational method that Seventh-day Adventists apply for studying Bible prophecies is called historicism. 
It's the idea that many of the major prophecies in the Bible follow an unbroken linear flow of history from past to present and to future. It's similar to how you might study history in school. We do it this way because that is how the Bible itself interprets these prophecies for us. All right. So in your own words, what is historicism? It's, it's using the uh, history that we can observe and that we know externally and looking at the Bible and comparing it. Okay, and as opposed to preterism and futurism, how does historicism work? I think one of the things that, are, that is unique to historicism is that God is constantly working throughout history. So preterism will have the notion that well, God did a lot of mighty works, but it was all in the past. So the question is, well, where is God now? Uh, futurism has, well, God's going to do all these wonderful things, but it's all in the future, so where is God now? But historicism has, God was there in the past, and he was working through Daniel, and he was working in the Medo-Persian Empire, and in the Greek Empire, the Roman. Even now, as we're in the feet and in the toes, which we're going to get into in, in Daniel 2, and then it's still there, and then there's the second coming, which is, you know, the great climax that we're waiting for. So historicism is God is never absent from Earth's history. He's always involved, and that which he has revealed is for us to know, and that which he hasn't revealed is not for us. Okay, we don't great. know. great. So historicism is a continuum. We yes. see a continuum that spans past, present, future. Yes. Uh, now let's, just so that we know, okay, so the, 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 we could say, I don't know, Calvinists believe in preterism and, and the evangelical world believes in futurism and Seventh-day Adventists hold to historicism and so it's, it's each one's opinion, right? Well, not really. Uh, and as uh, Aaron read in the lesson, the Bible leads us to historicism. And let's look at a couple passages here. I'm going to have us look up Revelation 1 verse 19. Revelation 1, verse 19. And Dorothea, I'm going to have you read that for us and read it with this in mind. This is the question I'm going to ask as you're reading it. How does this verse support a historicist reading? What's, what's something in this verse that would lead us to see that continuum versus a past interpretation of future? Okay, I'll be reading verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So this uh, leads us through past, what you have seen, the things which are, that's the present, and the things which will take place future. So it has that whole progression there. All right. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, past, present, you, you've got it just in that little text. You've got, more, it's clearly something that deals with, the, not just the future, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, it's interesting where it says that the things that will take place after, the Greeks actually says, which are about to come to pass. That makes me think of Revelation 1-1, where John is told to write these things down, and he's going to be shown what will shortly take place. In other words, not way off in the future. We're in 2020, and John saw these things in about 90 AD. So just in that one verse, we have the Bible tends to lead us to a historicist viewpoint. But let's get a little more detailed as we jump into, the lesson takes us to Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2, and I'm, I, in fact, for sake of time, because we do have a lot that we're going to be discussing here, this is in the lesson. And so this is a note for you teachers. Incidentally, which of you do teaching in your Sabbath school class? Amen. So for those of you who do teachers, 
I don't feel the need to reiterate everything in the quarterly because you've had that all week. Mm -hmm. Amen? Amen? And hopefully you've gone through and read the passage in Daniel 2, uh, verses 27 to 45. But this gives the picture of the image of Daniel and some of the interpretation. Now here's the question I want to ask as we consider that passage, and you can look at it while we're going over this. How does this passage show a continued interrupted, uh, uninterrupted succession of events? The idea of historicism, continual uh, unfolding. How does this passage speak to that? What are some things maybe that you see in this passage that would support historicism? I think, for me at least, we have the benefit today looking back and seeing all, seeing all of these kingdoms actually come to pass. And we know that many of them lasted a long time, which for those who are in Daniel's time, you might, you know, kingdoms changed rapidly. You didn't know if someone was going to reign for 20 years, for 50 years. I mean, kingdoms went and, and came uh, to know as, as we look back that some of these kingdoms lasted centuries. Uh, we can look back and say, well, obviously, as he's going through the different elements which appeared, the different metals in this image, it's spanning a huge time period, and yet God is knowing before these kingdoms even arise to power. This isn't a kingdom, this isn't just the next kingdom, which is maybe 50 or 100 years down the track. This is the kingdom that's 200, 300, 500, even 1,000 years later. He still accurately predicted exactly how it's going to be taking place. That amount of time can't just be placed in the past in a certain moment or in a certain period and say, well, in 50 years, this is the great yeah. time where all of this happened and now it's over. Excellent. You can't do that with thousands of years. Aaron, I saw you had a comment and then Cameron also. And just feel free to put the mic up and if you talk over somebody else, we'll sort it out. They don't know my teaching style yet. This is a little bit of the just, but go ahead and if you have a comment. So Aaron, go ahead and then Cameron, I saw you. Yeah, so one thing that I noticed when I was reading through this is how just like in a human body, which is what this, this image was portrayed as, um, the various nations worked and functioned together like one, like one unit, just as any, any body would function with its different parts. And, and through that, we can see how the head was connected to the chest, which was connected to the thighs um, or the waist. And, and it all worked together just as, as one body might work together. And that's also part of the historicist um, right. understanding of the continuous flow of things. So it would be hard to try to interpret this as being segmented or disconnected because you'd have to, the body is not disconnected. Yes. Right. So the Bible leads us to interpret it in a historicist fashion. Can we? I think she had a very good point, and then that's the point I was going to make, so I affirm <laughs> it. Yes, very well. Right. It had to be a good but point. But the imagery then. itself, you can't disconnect it. It's, it's a continuum. Yeah. Okay, well, what else? There's some other things in here, Aaron. Yeah. Um, ooh, that's real. Um, I think it is um, interesting how Daniel uses language that is language of time. And so it's arise, after, then. These are things that are sequential, uh, time-based language. And then he explicitly identifies the head as a kingdom itself. And so we are pointed in the direction of it being a kingdom. And then the time-based language first, second, third, indicates that those would be subsequent kingdoms Absolutely. in connection with what um, Aaron and Pastor DeBazer said before, that the body would be continuous as well. Absolutely. So you have the, the, the body imagery, you have the continuum, the, 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 the numbering, the first kingdom, the second, the third kingdom, not a third kingdom. Mm -hmm. So very clearly, and then when you come down to Christ's kingdom, in the days of these kings, 
another kingdom will be set up. So you have that very clear continuum. And, and the reason that this is important is, the reason the lesson is covering this is that our prophetic interpretations have been under attack. Even within the church, and there are people who are being urged to, to go with some different way of interpreting, but when you look at Scripture, it doesn't work. The Bible demands that we use a historicist interpretation just because of the nature of things written. Now, again, we're just, we're just briefly touching on uh, uh, these things. There's so much in the lesson, but even with this brief touching on it, it should affirm us in our prophetic interpretation. Well, and to be clear, it, it seems like now we have these three choices that have always been there. You could either interpret it preterist or futurist or historicist, you know. But the irony is that there weren't these other schools of thought in, for, the, for the majority of Christian history. In fact, the Protestant Reformation came about because the plain teaching of Scripture, the methodology that Scripture itself reveals, is historicist, and they could see, you know, we think of the Reformers, you know, of course, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Huss and Jerome and all the way down the line. They were not Protestants who picked up on some. There were no Protestants. There was one church and there was one understanding of Bible prophecy, and it led them to the identification of the Antichrist power and the recognition of where they stood in the flow of Bible history. It was the Bible itself. It wasn't some novel interpretation that kind of caught on. It was from the Bible itself, that the, and I don't know if we were already going to go there, if I just leapt ahead, but I apologize. But when we talk about preterism and futurism, those were inventions to get away from right. the ubiquitous historicism. And right. now it seems like there's a minority few who look at this, but this is just keeping on with what has been for centuries. Yes, Can I just say very briefly, another danger with trying to fall into the trap of preterism, futurism, is much of what God reveals as prophecy carries with it a certain message. There's a reason behind, God's not just revealing the future because he's like, hey, I'm so smart, guess what I can see, you know, and I want you to know it, know that. He, he's revealing it because there's a message that needs to be given at a certain time. If we fall into the trap of preterism, futurism, what does that do for our responsibility? Well, Very that was point. all in the past, or that's, that's for a future generation some way, so all I have to do is just live my life. Mm -hmm. God, be gracious to me, forgive me, and that's it, and I can do more or less what I want. And that's not what the Bible is calling. Right. As we investigate and study prophecy, I think our resolve for being missionaries, as was mentioned, should be, you know, boiling up and growing as well. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Now, we're going to transition here. The lesson transitions into the day-year principle, and I just need to say, uh, Dorothea, you're right behind Indy, the way that, and so you gotta, if you got something to say, no, you're fine, you're fine, no, 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 because I was told the cameras need it this way, but you just need to, I just don't want to miss you, so you, if you need like to wave your hand out here or something, you know, or just put the mic up and start talking, we'll get that, I just want to make sure I'm not overlooking you. Now the lesson moves into the year-day principle, or the day-year principle, and um, there are two texts that we traditionally use and always use, in fact, to, to almost to a fault, Numbers 14, 34, mm -hmm. where the Lord basically tells the children of Israel that for the 40 days they spied out the wilderness and gave a faithless report, they're going to wander 40 years, a day for a year. And then Ezekiel 4, 6, where the Lord tells Ezekiel that for the days of the apostasy of Israel and of Judah, he's going to lay on his side a day for every year of apostasy. And I... I've had people bring this, attack this, again, from within the church, and it used to be that I would 
wonder why we just had the two passages, and let's, why don't we add some other texts in there, and, and uh, people would say, well, that's not sufficient evidence, etc., etc., until I realized why we only need two. But I'm going to put it to the class. What would you do if somebody challenges you on this day-year principle where we say in prophecy, a day stands for a year. Somebody said, no, nah, that's not true. Day doesn't stand for a year in prophecy. What would you say to prove your point? What's, a, what's an example you might be able to give from one of the passages or, or something else? I would also go to Daniel 9 and stay within the book itself to advocate for this day-year principle. If I start um, with verse 24 and 25, when we have the 70 weeks, um, and Daniel verse 25, 9, 24 and 25. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to read the passages? Yes, please. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seventy-seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So we have here that the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that happened in 457 B.C., mm-hmm. And until Jesus was baptized, that's 27 AD. If we take these as literal weeks, we never cover that span of. Um, that's right. How do you? You're years. not going to get to Messiah the Prince in, in uh, 70 literal weeks. Mm-hmm. And so it again, the Bible demands the day for your principle. Yeah. And and this is the point that I, I, I the lesson keeps coming back to. Our method as Seventh-day Adventists, our methods of interpretation are because that's what the Bible demands. Mm-hmm. We're not just making stuff up. Uh, another example that I thought of is in Daniel chapter 8, mm-hmm. where you have, in our memory verse, you know, right yeah. before memory, the question is, how long will the vision be? Well, the vision of Daniel 8 starts with a ram. And the Bible tells us plain out in Daniel 8 that that ram, in verse 20, represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. It's followed by a goat which the Bible tells us in verse 21 is the Grecian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire itself lasted 208 years. And the question is, how long will the vision be that encompasses all that? And the answer is given under 2,300 days. Literally, that's only over six years. So it can't be that. It has to be the day for year, or it won't fit. And I, I'm going to take, we're going to bring a little algebra in here. Is that Okay. When I, was in, I don't know how they're doing it now, but when I was in school, when you would do, take your, in your algebra class, you'd take a simple equation like you solve for x. 3x plus 2 equals 8. Well, you subtract 2 from both sides. 3x equals 6. You divide both sides by 3. x equals 2. And then, how do you know x equals 2? Plug it back in. That's exactly what my teacher used to tell me. Plug it back in and see if it works. Once it works, you know it was right. Yes. That's why we only use Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6. That's why we don't go over all kind of lengths to try to find out and to prove the day for year because when you plug it in, it works. And without it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we just two, these two little examples we had here are two of many that could be given as we look at prophecy. So again, the day-for-year principle is something that is on solid ground. Incidentally, Dorothy, you were reading from Daniel 9, 70 weeks. 
The prophecy goes on to talk about that last week of time. You know what the evangelical world does with that last week of time? That last seven days? They turn it into the seven years of tribulation, day for year. You don't have to convince the evangelical world of day for year. They already believe it. So the lesson highlights the day for year principle and then moves on to identify... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to say one thing. Whenever someone's in doubt of like, okay, someone's coming, you're studying with them or you're sharing with them and they're saying, well, why a day for a year? It's important to say that whatever designation of time you're going to give to this symbolic time, and I think it's very evident, I mean, the beast is symbolic, like everything in the passage is symbolic, why wouldn't the time be symbolic as well? So, okay, if we can agree on that part, then the question comes to, well, what does it symbolize? And so, okay, if you're going to say a day equals a month, let's say, you could plug it in and see if it works, you'd find that it doesn't. Or you would at least have to say that each day has to represent exactly one month. It has to be uniform. This is part of the trouble that also comes, not that I'm trying to digress here, but when a lot of people say about the days of creation, you know, you cannot, even if you're somehow trying to merge evolutionary theory with the seven days of creation, you still don't have seven exact epochs of time that measure exactly what happens. You have to say the first day was billions and then the second day gets a little bit shorter and the third day and and they're still referencing full days the exact same time period so when it comes to prophecy again the same thing needs to be applied whatever measurement you're going to use needs to be um, consistent throughout and the bible i think should be the one that tells us we don't have anywhere in the bible as far as i know where god asked someone to do something for a day for a month yes you know but we do have instances where the day for a year is used so Again, let's plug it in and see if it works. And to our surprise, it does. And we've tried it. Again, it doesn't work in one spot. It works in multiple spots. Surprise and amazement. Oh, Look at that. It's, it's amazing. But, but what's amazing is it doesn't just work in Daniel 9. It works in Daniel 8. And it That's works right. also in Revelation when you That's start right. looking at the, the time periods there. So. And to his, to his point, what I was going to highlight is that that is one of those, the year-day principle is one of those unifying things that demonstrates Daniel and Revelation were written hundreds of years yes. apart, but the most frequently repeated time prophecy is that uh, time times and half a time, or, you know, and there's different way, 42 months, you know, and there's different ways of reckoning it, but when you put that day for a year in, it all comes out to 1,260 years, and it's both in Daniel and Revelation, so it, it Again, it kind of galvanizes all the points we've made so far and puts it into practical terms so we can do something with this and not just theorize about it. All right. Well, we, we, we need to move on to this next point. This is a huge point. And incidentally, a quick tip for those of you who talk with your hands like me. I have the luxury of having this mic on my face. But when you do this, you keep the mic right, right up there and then everybody can hear well. Um, The lesson actually goes through Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Any evangelist will tell you, in fact, Pastor Bryce, I was talking to him earlier, he's like, I take a whole presentation, who doesn't, on identifying the little horn of Daniel 7, and it's a piece of our lesson. Uh, In fact, I've chosen in our discussion not to go to Daniel 7 with the Antichrist, because at least the Protestant world used to be united on the identification of the Antichrist as Christian Rome, Papal Rome. But when you get to Daniel 8, and the lesson highlights this, and we don't have time to get into all the details, but the lesson shows how Daniel 2 was a parallel with Daniel 7, which is a parallel with Daniel 8. 
But when you get to the, uh, much of the Christian world today, they divert when you get to Daniel 8. And they'll say, yes, in Daniel 7, you see, you know, Daniel 2, you have four empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. You get to Daniel 7, and you have the four beasts, the lion, bear, leopard, yeah, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, Daniel 8 doesn't, Babylon's gone, or coming to its close, but the Bible identifies Persia and Greece, but then... A lot of people today will say that that next horn, the little horn of Daniel 8, is not the same as Daniel 7. And that means Seventh-day Adventists are just, I don't know, uh, romophobics or something. <laughs> and this is what uh, I, I want to look at with the passage. In fact, I want to look at Daniel 8, verses 9 to 14. Let's read that. And let me get a couple of you reading. Somebody read 9 to 11. Who wants to do that? Okay, Aaron, and then 12 to 14. Okay, Aaron and Aaron. So 9 to 11 and 12 to 14 in Daniel chapter 8. All right, Daniel uh, chapter 8, verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain holy one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you. Looking at this passage, in, in much of the Christian world today views this little horn in Daniel 8, as pointing to a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The question I want to pose to you is, from this passage, what are some indicators that this points to papal Rome, as Daniel 7 did? Well, we've kind of already highlighted it before, how, where you mentioned how Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, these are parallels so once that precedent has been set in the passage itself through the book, you would anticipate, it's written for us to anticipate and to give a path for interpreting it, right? So it can become more, I don't want to say the word confusing, but more elaborate and more you know, technical, but we've already had that basic framework that's been repeated from Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and now Daniel 8. So if we saw that same pattern in two, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you saw it, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. And then in Daniel 7, if you recall, Rome got divided into those temples. So it's getting more detail. You would expect that same pattern to go on. And I think okay. you see that with the great, very great, exceeding great. It's following the same trajectory. Okay, now you just threw something else in at the end. Now the parallel, yes, should, should already lead us there. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned, and we didn't, see, we didn't read through the whole passage, but in verse 9, how does it say this power grows? Exceedingly great. Exceedingly great. If you go back and look at the previous powers, mm -hmm. the ram only grew great, and then the goat grew very great, and now this one grows exceedingly great. Now, somebody may argue, 
If you read this in the original languages, they're different terms, but the exceedingly great and the very great are close enough terms that the language, the Greek alone or the Hebrew alone, is not going to identify the exceedingly great. But it's not an accident that, uh, and I jotted this down, New King, the King James, New King James, New American Standard, English Standard, Revised Standard, even the Amplified Bible, that in the text of the Amplified points to Antiochus Epiphanes, all use the adjective exceedingly great. In other words, this power in Daniel 8 is that much greater than Greece and uh, Persia. So there's, there's a, one point. Uh, Pastor Howard, was, is that the same um, in Daniel 7, verse 7, where it's talking about the fourth beast, and it says, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Would that be the same mm. word that I, I don't there? know if that's the same word. I haven't studied that, but you get the same picture. And again, with the parallel, it would lead you in that direction. Even though the language isn't the same, what it's talking about seems just so similar that you can't, at least I can't ignore it. The notion in uh, chapter 7, when it talks about pompous things, sorry, the notion in chapter 7, the language is so similar, thank you for reminding me, that uh, it's too difficult to ignore, at least for me personally. When you read in chapter 7 about how this little horn is speaking pompous words and blasphemies. And then you read in chapter 8, as we just did, that this power is exalting himself as high as the prince of the host. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is almost like Satan language in Isaiah 14. You know, I will be, I will be, I will be exalting himself, wanting to be like God. This isn't something that you regularly see, that people are just going around. Hold the thought. A lot of people, when they read Antichrist, they think, when we use the term anti, it's against. Yeah. But in the Greek, where we find that word Antichrist in the New Testament, it actually means in the place of Christ. And we, and we get a flavor of that in Daniel 7, but Daniel 8 is much clearer about how this power that it's predicting would come and take the place of Christ. And that's what you're, yeah. you're highlighting. And that's not the only thing. I mean, it says it cast down some of the hosts, the stars of the ground. It trampled them. I mean, if this isn't talking about persecution, then I don't know what is. It's different language again, but it seems to me that it's talking about the same thing. And again, taking down the, uh, causing the truth to be cast on the ground. I mean, changing times and laws. Uh, again, different languages being used, but it seems to be addressing a lot of the same motifs, if we could say that is appearing in chapter 7, specifically talking about the little horn. And let's not forget that it's the exact same word used in chapter 8, the little horn. The little horn is used both in chapter 8 and in chapter 7. That's right. Well, something else that I think is, is, is important to note, it, and sometimes people overlook this as well, it says in verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. If you look ahead in verse 25, it calls him the prince of princes. We know who that is. It's talking about Christ. And don't miss this in the context then. He, again, verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, that is Christ, and by him, this little horn, the daily sacrifices were taken away in the place of his, that is the prince of the host, or Christ, of his sanctuary was cast down. Mm-hmm. Where is Christ's sanctuary? How do we know it's in heaven? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8 says in verse 4 that if Jesus were on earth, he could not be a priest. His sanctuary was not on the earth. That limits us then, even in this prophecy, to say that the sanctuary cast down was the heavenly sanctuary. Now, how 
did this power cast down the place of Christ's sanctuary? And think of it in context now. We as Seventh-day Adventists have interpreted this as pointing to Papal Rome. How did Papal Rome exalt itself to the place of Christ? Let me put it this way. What happens in the sanctuary? What do people go to the sanctuary for? Mediation. They want a mediator. They want to mediate for what purpose? To atone for their sins. To, to atone be cleansed. for their sins. In the Church of Rome, how do people receive forgiveness of sin? They pray to Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. No. no. Do they go to a heavenly priest? No. They go to earthly priests. Yeah. Earthly altar. Yeah. Earthly incense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Earthly sacrifice in the mass. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't get clearer in this foreshadowing of... And, and, and again, the reason I chose Daniel 8 is because to me Daniel 8 really zeroes in on the in fact mm. without me saying it let's go to the question the lesson asks because I think it ties in right here at the end of Tuesday the bottom of the page in the in the color there's a question there's a thought question would somebody read that who wants to read that for me bottom of the page on Tuesday's lesson in the color block in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, after Greece, one power arises that exists to the end of time. What power could that be other than Rome now in its papal stage? No matter how politically incorrect, why is this a crucial teaching of the three angels' messages and hence a crucial component of present truth? Okay, now that last part, pol politically incorrect as it is, why is this so important? And I'm serious. I've had Seventh-day Adventists come to me and say, why do we keep harping on this? Why do we make a point of this? Why do we have to point out Rome in this prophecy? And, and be, so in the context, I mean, I think our discussion, even as limited as it's been, kind of answers the question. But how would you answer that question? Why is this so important, this identifying the little horn? If we don't um, understand the true nature of Babylon, then... I don't think that we'll be able to come out of her or call others to do the same. Okay, excellent point. Other thoughts? Well, I'm reminded of Second Thessalonians. Um, I, this, the, the whole passage in Daniel 8 and exalting himself, sitting, you know, t t trampling the truth, the sanctuary brought down. When Paul, who was living in the time of Rome, right, he was already had seen the history of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now he's living in Rome, but he's still looking ahead. And notice, we are seven-day Adventists. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ, right? But look what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, which is the coming of Christ, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. That son of perdition uh, who opposes and exalts. So notice there's both poses and exalts himself. So it's not just against God, but wants to be in the place of. And he goes on to articulate. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So as Seventh-day Adventists, we're looking forward to the coming of Christ, but we know that there was this revealing of this man of sin, this imposter who would try to take the place of, who would oppose. And I mean, it's hard not to get evangelistic right now, yeah. but but how, if you were to remove that from the historical flow of the prophecies and from the last day events... Okay, well, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Here's where... My, I'm thinking of this, and I'm th you know, like, why, why is this such a big deal? Let's see. There's a power who puts itself in the place of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. 
feigns to be Christ, leads people who are looking for salvation to a false system. Why is that such a big deal? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. This is a huge deal. This is something, it, it, with all due respect, and people who may be confused on this issue and be part of this system, this is a system that has taken the place of Jesus for salvation, and there are honest seekers who have been drawn into this for salvation that's never going to come through that system. It's a man-made system of salvation that has put itself in the place of Christ. Mm. Uh, that is a big deal. <laughs> Andy, yes. Yeah, just, I think part, I'm convinced, at least from my study, that part of the reason why this horn or this power is so exceedingly great and much greater than all of the ones that come is because it carries with it this ideological element. A lot of the, the uh, ancient kingdoms would just conquer each other. There was a war, they would yes. win... But more or less, they would embrace, like Nebuchadnezzar embraced them. He brought the Hebrews right into his court. He wanted them to learn the language. He wanted them to be his advisors, this kind of thing. But what you find with this little horn power is they have an army for sure, but it's there to enforce an ideological, this, right. this wrong way of worshiping, of, of receiving forgiveness for sins. And this is something which should concern us because the battle at the end, Jesus tells us, if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. Mm. This isn't something that we can take like a haphazard stance of, oh, I just know that I don't need to worship on Sunday. That's all I need to know. Uh, there's so much more. I think Satan works so subtly yes. and so craftily. From the very beginning, his war was an ideological one. Oh, God right. said you won't die? God said you'll die? No, no, no. You won't die. If he can cause us to doubt in our minds, then he can win the battle. And that's why truth is revealed to us, so we don't have to fall. Well, I mean, I'm glad you brought that point up because it's interesting to me. You know, a lot of times in study of prophecy, the Bible says in Daniel 7 that this power would be diverse from all the others. And I've heard people say, that's because it's church state. No, that's not. Babylon was church state. Persia was church state. You worship the king or else you go into lion's den. Yeah. This was the only church state that was allied with the Christian religion. Yeah. So the philosophy that feigns Christianity, while at the same time it's of the darkest hue. Yeah. Anyway, excellent point. Um, our position on uh, the day-year principle, our historicist position, our identification of a little horn, is just where Scripture would lead us. And now the lesson takes us to the investigative judgment. And I've had people address that investigative, it's a made-up word, it's an Adventist word, it's not in the Bible. Sure, it's not in the Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible that people use. Rapture's not in the Bible. Millennium's not in the Bible, and these kinds of things. Um, but the idea of the, the investigative judgment, is this a Seventh-day Adventist creation? The, the lesson points us to Daniel 7. And so, again, let's go and read just a few verses here in Daniel 7, verses 9 to 14. And let's see, Aaron and Aaron read the last time. So, Andy, I'm going to ask if you would read uh, Daniel 7, 9 to 11. And if Dorothea would read verses 12 to 14. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousands, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, 
yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an ever everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Okay, a couple quick questions. First of all, what do we see taking place here? Judgment scene. A judgment scene, a courtroom scene, right? And in the midst of that scene, what is it that it says Jesus, the, the Son of Man, received? Kingdom. He receives a kingdom. Okay? Now hold that thought for a minute. I want to take the idea of courtroom for a minute and this whole concept of investigative judgment. How many of you have seen a trial before? I'm not going to ask you if you've been to trial before. <laughs> um, Judge Judy or anything. It could be anything. You've seen a courtroom session. Okay, so tell me some of the elements of a courtroom trial. The trial date is set and uh, a person shows up for court and what happens? There's usually a judge, a prosecutor, a defender. Okay, judge, prosecutor, jury. defender, jury. What happens with the prosecutor and the defender? One is pleading the case, whether they're innocent or guilty, okay. and the other one is trying to thwart them. Okay, I so they're, they're, they're presenting evidence, mm -hmm. calling witnesses. Yes. Could we say they're investigating? Mm -hmm. Yes. Would that be far off the mark? Okay, so are we done after they've done that process? No. What happens next? A verdict has to be reached. Okay, they have to reach a verdict, guilty or not guilty. So let's say they say the person is guilty. Are we done? Not yet. Now what has to happen? Sentencing. Sentencing, right? Okay, guilty, what do we get? Five years in prison, community service, what's it going to be, right? So now you have sentencing. Are we done yet? No. Now what happens? They have to serve the sentence. They have to execute the judgment. Execution of the sentence, right? Does that follow from what you understand in a trial? Pretty, pretty common knowledge, right? Go to the Bible, to the book of Jude, right before Revelation. And look at verse 14, and Aaron, I'm going to have you read this one. Jude 14. Jude's only one chapter. All right, Jude chapter, Jude uh, verse 14. Now, oh yes, 14 and 15. 14 and 15, okay. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And fifteen, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so we talked about all those phases of judgment. What was the last phase? Execution. Execution. What phase did Jesus begin to carry out when he comes again? According to Jude, he comes to execute judgment. When did all the other phases take place? Before. Before his coming. So our Adventists off the mark were saying there's an investigative phase of judgment before the coming of Jesus. Now we could talk about his reward being with him and all kinds of things there, but let's do one other thing. Let's go to Luke chapter 19 and look at a parable that Jesus gave that fixes the timing of the judgment scene in Daniel 7. Luke 19. Cameron, I'm going to have you read, would you? 
Okay, Luke, Luke 19. 19, verses 12 to 14. 12 to 14 of Luke 19. Yes. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Oh, this is so rich. I want to get off Ooh. into this. But let's take the, first of all, who's the certain nobleman in the parable? Who's Jesus speaking of? Who's going off into the far country and returning? Jesus. Jesus. What is his return talking about? His second Second coming. coming. So Jesus here in the parable says that he's going to go away into a far country and he's going to come again. And in between that time, what's he going to do? Receive for himself a kingdom. He's going to receive a kingdom. Did we just see that in prophecy? Mm -hmm. In Daniel 7, we see a judgment scene that takes place in heaven where Jesus receives a kingdom. And Jesus tells us that that scene takes place, according to this parable, between the time of his ascension and his return. Mm -hmm. So it fixes the time of what we would call the pre-advent or investigative judgment. Very clearly from the words of Christ. And I like this passage especially because I think it speaks to the real nature of the work to be determined in the judgment. What's the real question that's being posed? What did it say in verse 14? And tell me how you think that ties into what's happening in that judgment. Verse 14 said, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Oh, let me put it this way. I'm going to ask the class. If you were going to inherit a kingdom, how great would that kingdom be if all the people of that kingdom hated you? If you're looking forward to a kingdom, what kind of kingdom, what makes the kingdom enjoyable? You can work with the people there. Subjects in that kingdom who love and serve you. And I believe that Jesus is alluding to that point in Luke, that the real question being determined right now in this investigative pre-advent judgment is who are those people who are willing to serve Jesus, who don't hate him, who won't say, we won't have this man serve over us, will say, Jesus, I want to serve you for the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus is speaking to the nature of that investigative judgment. But very clearly, again, we have good scriptural ground for our belief in the pre-advent investigative judgment. Were you going to add something, Dorothy? Yes, I also want to go back to Daniel 7 again for those people that still might question the pre-advent judgment and its placement. We see in Daniel 7 that this theme is repeated Mike. three times. Sorry, we see that no, this not. theme is repeated three times. Um, because in, at the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, we have the beasts again, and then we have this little horn. So we have little horn, and then in verse 10, there's the court was seated. And verse 14, we have the, this kingdom being established. And then it happens again. In verse 21, we have this little horn again. Um, and then we have judgment in 22 and kingdom again. And then a third time this happens... Uh, in verse 24, we again have another horn shall arise, and then court seated, and then kingdom. So we see the sequence yes. repeated three times. So we're mm-hmm. even told the order. And the fact that it happens three times in the same chapter right. makes it a sure thing. Why would the Lord inspire it to be repeated? So we would get it, yeah. right? I mean, Hopefully. you know, you get it. So again, yeah. I, I, even though we're going through these things quickly, I think there's clear scripture evidence for us to have confidence in the positions Mm -hmm. that we've held as Seventh-day Adventists. And, of course, we didn't get into the time prophecy of Daniel Mm -hmm. 8.14, you know, which, time permitting, but we believe that that 
prophecy points to that in Daniel 8.14 that began in 1844 AD. But I really want to move to my last point, which I actually have drawn out from earlier in the lesson. It was actually at the bottom of Sunday's lesson, and I'm going to ask uh, Erin if you could read on the bottom of the page on Sunday, there's a little, right, the last part that says read John Read that uh, uh, passage in, or that little part and the question there on the bottom of the page on Sunday's lesson. What does Jesus say? Mm-hmm. What does Jesus say that helps us understand how prophecy can function? Okay, and the text there? John fourteen twenty nine says... So we're going to look this up. It gives us John fourteen twenty nine. We're going to look up John fourteen twenty nine. We're going to also look up John 13, 19 with this question in mind. What does Jesus say that helps us to understand how prophecy can function? And I would like to emphasize more than that, I think how prophecy does function. This piece to me is key to why prophecy is important, as I think we're going to see. So let's see, you, did you get John 14? Uh, okay, so I'm going to have you read that. Hold on a minute. And then who, re- who has John 13, 19? I can read it. Andy, okay, so Aaron, if you would read uh, John 14, 29, and Andy, then follow up with John 13, 19. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And John 13, 19 is very similar. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Okay, now in both of these passages, Jesus is saying that I'm telling you before it happens. He's giving a reason for prophecy. I'm telling you before it happens, why? Strengthen our faith. Okay, because how does it strengthen our faith? Seeing how God has led in the past and seeing how he's been faithful and his word is true. Okay. How do we know that God can actually see the future before it happens? How do we know that? You know, how do we test? Let's say you think you're a faster sprinter than I am. Well, let's set a race and let's run and we'll see who's faster. But when someone tells you, hey, I know the future before it happens, okay, prove it, right? Right. You want them to prove it. And so that's what prophecy is. He's saying, I know what's going to happen. Let me tell you so that when it comes to happen, you can believe what I say about the very, very end. And the very, very end is no matter how dismal things may seem for God's people, I come and I redeem them. I raise those who have passed away yes. and we go to heaven and we live throughout eternity okay. together. So it's God's evidence for who he is. Aaron? Yeah, yeah and I, I think it is important to point out that with the prophecy, we can say our faith is not baseless. Now, there's, there's several ways that you can experience God. And so you can have an experiential component where you're living and you're seeing how he is influencing you, influencing others, and maybe if you, if you feel that connection to God. But you also have a historical basis um, to inform your faith. And so our faith is not blind. We have things previously that we can point towards and say, I've seen how God's led history. I've seen how he's led me, and I see how he's leading me, and then that can carry into the future. Absolutely. Excellent point. Cameron? Well, to touch on exactly what was just stated there, that there's, and I'm, I'm not sure I heard it exactly, but there's different ways of knowing God you can experience him. And sometimes I think that we pull out a study of prophecy. I mean, we went, through, we went through mathematics just a minute ago. We've gone through history. We've gone through scriptural comparisons. And it can seem very almost 
arch, kind of like uh, uh, removed from personal experience. Like it's academic. You can put it on a shelf. It's, it's fact, but it's not really doing much for me. But there's something about when you stare in the face of prophecy, you're looking at Jesus in the eye. He's saying, I'm the one who knows the future, and I'm talking to you about this. And there's a self-evidentary kind of like conviction that comes that there, I don't want to double down on the idea. I don't want to reinforce the notion that Bible prophecy is, and Bible study is one way to know God, but then you can also like do these other things. When this is the primary way God has given for us to know him and he to know us. Okay, now you, you've led us right into where I want to go in this path, in this uh, Looking at this, I think there's a very practical example of this working in the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke 22, and we're going to look at verse 59. Now, we're looking at Peter's denial of Christ. And in Luke 22, just a few verses earlier, back in verse 31, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. So he prophesied Peter's denial. We're picking up in verse 59 with the third denial of Peter. And incidentally, again, Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him three times before the second crowing of the rooster. If you look at all the guys, I think Mark brings out the second crowing of the rooster. So we come down to verse 59, and let's see, who needs to read? Luke 22, 59. I'm trying to remember who, the, I don't think you read a little bit, Dorothea, uh, in a little bit, so I'm going to have you read Luke 22, verses 59 to 62. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. <laughs> this passage is so powerful and moving to me. When you think of, first of all, Luke is the only one that brings up that when Peter denied Christ a third time, Christ looked from the trial over into the eyes of Peter. And Ellen White commenting on that says that that look of Christ had sympathy in it, but no condemnation in it. Now, I want you to think this through. Now, it, it, the, the Bible tells us that immediately, like while the words were barely off his lips, he heard the rooster crow, and what happened? What does the Bible say? He went out and wept. Before he wept, he remembered, he remembered the words that Christ spoke to him. I want you to think about the power of the prophetic words of Christ. Let's think for a minute. Let's just suppose for a minute that Jesus didn't tell Peter prior. He didn't predict the denial. What would Peter's response have been? Would he have been brokenhearted? Sure he would have. When Jesus looked in his eyes, his heart would have broken. He would have felt like a failure. And then what? Is there a chance he would have done like Judas did? Mm. I'm going to say and, su and suggest that it was Christ's prediction of Peter's denial that Peter, you know, Peter could have felt bad, but Jesus still didn't fit the M.O. of Messiah, right? He still was going to die on a cross, and the Messiah was supposed to deliver them, so he could have felt bad, but he still could have had doubts. 
But when Jesus spoke those words, just like you said, Andy, he knew this is somebody who knows the future and knows me better than I know myself. In the Desire of Ages, Ellen White says it this way, page 713. The sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow. Conscience was aroused. And then listen to the next sentence. Memory was active. Peter called to mind his promise of a few short hours before that he would go with his Lord to prison and to death. He remembered his grief when the Savior told him in the upper chamber that he would deny his Lord thrice that same night. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but now he realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. And I want to suggest that had Christ not made that prediction, Peter still would have felt heartbroken. But I don't know that it would have led him to conversion and to yielding his life to Christ. And there's something that Seventh-day Adventists, I think, have forgotten, that when God has given these prophecies, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy is not just facts and figures. It's a revelation to us of a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Yeah. A God who, even when we're confused, he knows the way, in the words of Job, he knows the way that I take. And when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Mm. I think that's the power of the message of prophecy. God forbid, as Seventh-day Adventists, we would give up that message, believing it or proclaiming it. Because it's going to have that same power in anybody who hears and sees the fulfillment of these words. That God has sent his son into this world that we may have life everlasting. Well, I don't know if anybody wants to add any closing comments. We have just a couple minutes. Pastor Cameron, you are the director of the department. Anything you want to add? I want to affirm your leadership of the Sabbath school class. But in, in all seriousness, I, I very much appreciate that point because we hear it whether it's in our own personal study, in local church, Sabbath schools, or presentations, messages, even public evangelism. Why are we harping? Why do we always go there Be, as though this is a niche thing that we used to do back then as a cute, quaint thing? There is a living and active God, and His Word is living and active, and Bible prophecy demonstrates that. And it reveals to us not only His might and His mind, but His heart as well, that He tells us because He loves us. And he wants us to be drawn close to him. I love it. Amen. Well, next week we are going to have... Andy, are you on next week? next week? And Aaron, are you girls next week? So It'll you two will be... Setup. Next week's going to be... We'll have a little more breathability in the lesson. We crammed a lot into this. Yeah. But I praise the Lord for how he's led us in the message he's given us. And I appreciate the contributors of the quarterly. I'm going to ask Aaron if you would have our closing prayer for us today. Father in heaven, um, we want to thank you so much today for the gift of life that you've given to each of us and the opportunity we have to come together and study your word. It's such a blessing. Thank you. Um, thank you for sending your spirit to bless our discussion, and I pray that you would keep, um, keep us close to you this week and help us to continue studying your word to understand you better, and I pray that you would help us to not only understand the logistics and 
um, the various elements of prophecy that make sense, but also how that can impact us in our relationship with you. Thank you so much for being a God who wants to know us, and um, we love you too. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.